Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Marty Bent, prolific podcaster and Bitcoin entrepreneur. We talk about energy, oil and gas, and the economics of the industry. Marty also tells us about energy output being good for civilization, the role of the petrodollar, and the uniqueness of oil. Finally, we talked about how Bitcoin is going to change the energy industry going forward. Marty has been in and out of the oil and gas industry for the past eight years. He's a passionate Bitcoiner, and his thoughts on energy production was really eye-opening. He does a good job here dispelling the misleading narratives surrounding Bitcoin's energy use. Enjoy. Marty Ben, how's everything going, man? It's going great, Jamie. It's great to be in Austin. The vibe down here is very high. It's better than the northeast part of the country right now. I can tell you that for sure. It feels like freedom is reigning supreme down here. Oh, sounds like you're kind of disillusioned with what's going on where you are. Yeah, it's weird. There's mm-hmm. a lot of groupthink, particularly mm-hmm. in the northeast part of the country right now. And it's a bit scary, a bit disconcerting. And as a young adult, or I'm not a young adult anymore, I'm entering my 30s, I guess I'm an adult now with a young child Mm. and a wife. We've been, we escaped New York last year. Mm. We've been living at my in-laws vacation home for last year and we just feel a bit, not displaced, but like we're in a bit of a limbo. We need Mm. to figure out where we're going to settle our roots down and, and raise our family, at least for like the next five, 10 years. And it's hard being in the Northeast considering everything that's going on right now with the lockdowns and the the posturing towards mask mandates elongating into the future. And we're just not sure if we want to put up with that. So we're down here checking out Austin Mm. to see if this is a potential place to lay roots. And the Austin Bitcoiners have been making a very good solid case this week. Five days in now, we're going to check out Florida. But yeah, it's a weird time to be alive. Thank God we have Bitcoin. Ah, indeed, indeed. And that's something that we'll definitely get into because part of your moving down here is because of the sort of the oil and gas business that's around here. So can you tell our audience what sort of experience you have in that sector and like what made you sort of like marry that and Bitcoin, basically? <laughs> so I've had a meandering winding path in and out of exposure to the oil and gas markets. It started out out of college. I worked for a managed futures fund. And uh, at the managed futures fund, we indexed commodities trading advisors mm. into a fund of funds. And so as an analyst there, my job was basically analyzing the, the hedge funds that we were indexing, essentially, and speaking mm. with other chief investment officers and understanding their trading strategies. And a lot of the markets they traded were commodities markets. And so my first foray into getting exposure to oil and gas market was from an analyst side in the hedge fund world trying to understand the macro factors that were driving price movements Mm. in crude oil and natural gas and so that was my first worry understanding how opec worked the different types of crude around the world like nigerian sweet crude what was going on there what was going on in the shale industry at the time and it was just fascinating uh, understanding how important and integral oil and gas is to the world and, and how price discovery worked within that particular market. So that was my first foray into oil and gas. And then I quit the job at the hedge fund in 2014 and then decided to learn more about software, mm. particularly UX, UI design, front end development. And then a couple of years after learning about that, took a job at a software shop selling offshore development 
sources or offshore development talent to media companies in New York. And so learned a bit about backend stuff and then fast forward a little bit, quit that job, took another job, got back into finance for a little bit and mm-hmm. got a job at a valuations firm. So out of Philadelphia and they would basically take private equity and investment bank portfolios that, that were invested in mid-market companies that weren't public yet. And they'd give a third party valuation recommendation for the companies that the private equity companies and investment banks invested in. And during that job, and that's when I started getting more exposure to oil and gas sort of that came back into my life because some of these mid-market companies were oil and gas companies and they were private, but due to the fact that we were valuing them for these private equity firms, we had access to their financials. And it was fascinating for me at the time. This was 2016. Mm. At the end of 2016, beginning of 2017, it was fascinating for me to see how overextended some of the producers that came across my desk were. So I had insight into the, the, the amount of debt they were in and how they were planning to pay back that debt. And at the time, it was mind-blowing to me. One example I like to tell a lot on Gamcast and Tales from the Crypt whenever it comes up is like one producer came across my desk. It took out a $100 million, 17% pick loan which is an insane loan, particularly for the borrower, because mm. you had to pay back that debt like, really aggressively. And the way they were able to get that, that pick loan was by projecting that the price of a barrel of oil would be $80 oh, wow. into the future. And at the time, oil prices were crashing. So it was mm. just like, how were they able to get this much money at this interest rate with mm. this projection, which if you're paying attention to... The commodities markets seemed like asinine and mm-hmm. really unrealistic. So that's my second touch with the oil and gas market. And then I left the valuations firm to go full head into Bitcoin, starting the newsletter and the podcast. And by nature of that, writing about Bitcoin every day, starting the podcast in middle of 2017, I got uh, worked at Barstool for a little bit, Barstool Sports. During that time, I did a seven-month stint there and then... Great American Mining found me, which is the company I work for now, mm. outside the podcast and the newsletter. And at Great American Mining, we mine Bitcoin, and mm. we use natural gas that is typically wasted on oil and gas fields to as our energy source. So we, so we go to producers that are flaring natural gas upstream, and we say, hey, don't flare that. We'll do an off-take agreement. We'll actually buy that gas from you, mm-hmm. and we'll use and we'll run it through generators that we'll use to then power miners so we can mm. mine Bitcoin. Mm, wow. So you've had a huge sort of swath of exposure to the oil and gas industry. So let's dig into that just a little bit. So you said that the economics of oil and gas are absolutely fascinating and how critical it is to the economy. I think we all kind of understand that, but can you put a little more meat on those bones a little bit? Yeah, I mean, energy is extremely important for civilization. Mm-hmm. Uh, electricity production and energy production sort of correlates with human flourishing. And so mm-hmm. if we want the quality of life that we have today, mm-hmm. it is necessary to produce and convert energy into electricity so that we can do the things that we want to do, like record this podcast <laughs> and do it in a way that that's cheap enough so that many people can participate in that quality of life. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, the oil and gas industry is very much maligned right now, considering the climate around mm-hmm. people who think the climate is about to fall off an edge and, and ruin human civilization. 
And so it's interesting that this industry is sort of villainized when it is producing the, the quality of life. It is probably the main driver mm. for the quality of life that we, we have been afforded on this planet in, in the modern age. And, and so it's interesting to see the sort of narrative tied against this industry, which has provided us so much. And I think if more individuals around the world sort of understood the, the dynamics at play globally between different markets that produce oil and, and how they get it to market and, and the things that are made with it. The, these mics are probably made with petroleum products, the, mm-hmm. the plastic that, that goes on yogurt and cell phones. Like pla- petroleum products are every hydrocarbons are needed to build many of the things that we use in our everyday life. And so it's interesting to see how the oil and gas industry is, is so villainized in today's day and age. And somebody who's had multiple touches with it and now a very intimate touch with Great American Mining as we're actually, it's my first like, sort of exposure to how things actually work at, mm. at the micro level on a well pad mm. uh, and understanding the, the technology and the, the hard work that goes into getting that stuff out of the ground to market. It's fascinating to see just how ignorance of people who really don't understand what's going on maligning this this industry yeah i get the sense that oil and gas are just an enormous part of the world economy and people don't seem to understand just how much so can you like you mentioned some of the products that are probably being made but how critical is it to the world that you know oil and gas how critical is it at this point i mean very critical right because again the the energy density of these hydrocarbons mm-hmm. is such a, like it packs a punch. Like you, when you combust that hydrocarbon, it produces a lot of electricity. It's economically dense. And so, mm-hmm. and it's abundant, Not, it's scarce to an extent, but it's, it's pretty abundant where like people have been <laughs> fear mongering about peak oil for mm-hmm. more than a century now. And it still hasn't, we're still finding oil and gas. Mm-hmm. seems like every year, I believe it just found like a huge basin down in Mexico and, mm-hmm. But it's beautiful, especially if you're, like, you're able to pull it out the ground and get it to market. The economic density and the energy density of the molecules just helps provide the quality of life. Because, again, mm-hmm. you get so much out of those molecules and it helps drive down the price of energy at the end of the day. So more people can participate in converting energy to electricity and, and doing productive things with it. Mm-hmm. And like, how does the whole process like affect the world, right? Like You mentioned that... There's extraction from the ground, then there's obviously transportation, and then refining, and then, you know, it gets put into a useful state that lots of people around the world are using it for in some very surprising ways. Yeah, yeah, I mean, people (laughs) malign fracking particularly as well, but that is honestly a revolutionary thing that has allowed America particularly to develop a, a, well, if we don't mess it up, we've been able to provide ourselves with somewhat of an energy independent state here because we figured out a very innovative and somewhat efficient way could certainly be more efficient we'll probably get into that later in the Mm -hmm. conversation how bitcoin fixes that but yeah like the technologies that are used and they're that are being developed to get these hydrocarbons out of the ground and to market um, as efficiently and as profitable as possible are insane and it's really a feat of human ingenuity that should be vaunted and celebrated but for some reason people have been misled in my opinion via very strong narratives in the media 
mm. and by people who who are anti-human. Um, <laughs> and at the end of the day, people who really don't care about green energy, they, they more care about people using less energy, which is mm. anti-human again, because we use energy mm -hmm. to build things that make our lives better. Mm. So you mentioned before that there's a lot of people that are like very much against this whole thing. And you keep calling them like sort of anti-human, right? Like very, very much sort of like, I guess, chicken littles or whatever. And, you know, we're seeing that certainly coming into the Bitcoin industry. There's a lot of energy fund, things of that nature. What do you say to that? What do you say to those people that think, okay, you're ruining the planet? Is it bad science? Is it they have the wrong perspective on something? What's your sort of response when you meet those people? Well, first, I like the Chicken Little response, right? Okay. It's like people have been screaming about this for decades. Mm. Like, one, like Alex Epstein, who wrote Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, has, mm. has done a really good job at highlighting this particular fact that was spouted by uh, a gentleman who wound up, I forget his name off the top of my head, but he wound up becoming Barack Obama's lead science advisor when he was president. In mm -hmm. the mid-1980s, he was predicting that by 2020, mm -hmm. last year, over the course of that 25-year period, or excuse me, 35-year period, 1 billion people would die from climate-related deaths. And over that time period, over that 35-year period, around the world per capita, the amount of climate-related deaths wound up falling by 98%. <laughs> so people, and I think Alex does a really good job of framing these particular arguments in around energy use and conversion to electricity by saying we use these resources to protect ourselves against the climate, right? Like nature is a cruel bitch and we need to protect ourselves against that. And we use electricity to build things to protect ourselves against climate, to build houses that have heating and air conditioning so that we can have a quality of life. So mm -hmm. that, that fact that like climate deaths have fallen by 98% because we've been able to produce, extract energy resources and produce electricity that has helped more humans protect themselves against the climate just proves that the hysteria that's been throwing around the climate change debate is is wrong. <laughs> like we, We're using this this energy to protect ourselves against nature. Mm -hmm. And it's a good thing. Like Humans are innovative. We're in, we have ingenuity. We use our brains mm -hmm. that God has given us to do great things and <laughs> harnessing energy, creating electricity and, and doing things that make the quality of life better for many humans on the planet is a great thing that should be celebrated. Like we should be using more energy and creating more electricity to create better quality of life for more individuals around the world. We should be dry, trying to drop energy prices down to as low as possible mm. so people can do more things with electricity and the move towards a green technology energy generation system which is just going to cause prices to skyrocket. And we already have modern day examples of countries that have tried to transition away from fossil fuels and nuclear energy to wind and solar specifically and predominantly. And they've seen price per kilowatt hour of residential electricity prices go up astronomically in Germany. Mm. I think it's gone up like three or four X over the last 20 years. Mm. It's at 38 cents per kilowatt hour right oh, now wow. That's for residential electricity. Mm. And it's because people are kowtowing to these. Again, I think they're anti-human. I don't think they care about green energy mm -hmm. production at all. I think they want us to use less energy. And there's many 
examples that I think prove that point. The one being, again, like if they actually cared about green energy and reducing the carbon footprint in the world, they would be advocating for nuclear like, mm. aggressively mm. And, and really aggressively. And yet they don't. They actually want to decommission mm-hmm. nuclear power plants. We've actually seen this in states like California. Mm. I mean, like California's had rolling blackouts recently. Mm. And many people want to blame, <laughs> some of them actually tried to blame Bitcoin miners. It's mm-hmm. funny. A, a woman tweeted out a couple months ago, I had to write a newsletter about it. She tweeted out a picture, mm-hmm. like we're having rolling blackouts in, in California. And she pointed at the Bitcoin network and look at all this energy Bitcoin miners are, are converting into electricity. And then she posted four pictures of four Bitcoin mining warehouse operations. And mm-hmm. one was in New York, one was in Kazakhstan, like one was, <laughs> none of them were in California. And like mm-hmm. she does, so this is another point that needs to be made is like people don't understand how electricity mm-hmm. is generated, how energy is extracted and how like mm-hmm. grid system works. And so she was trying to blame Bitcoin for mm-hmm. California's rolling blackouts when really the cause of the rolling blackouts is they decommissioned natural gas and nuclear power plants and mm-hmm. didn't replenish that energy generation. And mm-hmm. so if you have 30 million people living in California and that number doesn't go down and you decommission mm-hmm. energy facilities and you don't replace them, the amount of total energy goes down. And so if you have the same people vying for less energy and prices are going to go up and at some point you may run out of that energy too and that causes mm. rolling blackouts and mm. just a misconception around just energy markets in general it's driven by ignorance mm. yeah and that's very similar to bitcoin in that regard right like there's a conception that people have of bitcoin that is completely separate from the actual reality and this seems to be the case for energy like a lot of people don't understand how energy production works or how it gets used or you know how everything is built so could you explain that a little bit and like what are some popular misconceptions of energy and how can we understand how it works better because a lot of the energy fud obviously is hey you know kilowatt hour produced in kazakhstan is the same as you know <laughs> one in downtown la and it's uh, of course not the case yeah like so complete opposite of Bitcoin, where Bitcoin is this global distributed network where I can send Bitcoin from Mm -hmm. Austin, Texas to New York City Mm. very easily over the internet. Like, if you're producing energy here in Mm -hmm. Austin, you're not going to be delivering it to a grid. Like, maybe truck some oil up there and and you get into gasoline stations, but I don't think there's natural gas pipelines going all the way up to New York and feeding a grid up there from down here. Henry Hub... Mm. So the point I'm trying to make is energy is very local compared to like a global distributed network like Bitcoin, right? Mm. Like the people think that energy generation is trivial, right? And this is blatantly obvious because of the belief that we could just transition to an economy run on green energy technology (laughs) trivially and have the same quality. And people don't understand the the price of that. So the price of transitioning Mm -hmm. (laughs) all of our grids to green energy technology, wind and solar, that means we're actually going to have to produce more fossil fuels because the amount of fossil fuels needed to produce mm-hmm. the solar panels and <laughs> the wind turbines is pretty immense. And you're going to mm-hmm. have to go dig for rare earth metals. You're going to have to, mm-hmm. you're going to, you actually have to heat coal up to certain levels to get to the certain solar panels that you want. And then mm-hmm. recycling that stuff. Like mm-hmm. if you want to recycle that stuff, the back end of its life, you have to heat up more coal. Like the only, the only 
anything that can get hot enough to actually recycle those efficiently is mm-hmm. our fossil fuels. So like mm-hmm. throughout that life cycle, you actually need fossil. There's no, you can't have green energy without fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so like the, the thing that that's trivial, you can just like create these green energy sources without any other resources outside of them. Like you can't create solar panels with solar. You can't create mm-hmm. the iron ore that goes into the windmills without like using <laughs> using fuel to actually dig them out of the ground and, mm. and and then like more specifically the grids like you need to be near the energy source right mm. like that is like the dissipation of energy as it travels like it, it has entropy right so the closer you are to the energy source the more dense economic use you can get out of that energy and so like when the the woman in california posted those pictures of mining warehouses in new york and kazakhstan she mm. I don't know if she even knew where they were, but I don't think she trying to say that Bitcoin miners are pulling energy out of California is like completely doesn't like energy is not it's fungible, but it's not like transferable over those long distances. Like it's more more like outside of oil, which you can put in a barrel and, and ship mm-hmm. around the world and get that density. Um, like wind, solar certainly can't travel that far. Like mm-hmm. it's a big problem with them right now. You can't. You can't take wind and solar energy and, and transport it from California to Philadelphia. Like it's, there's no voltage lines that would be able to make that possible, or we don't have the batteries yet to make that possible, or even if you did have the batteries, would it even be viable? Be, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, because people seem to think that energy is completely fungible and portable, and that you know whatever you produce in a hydroelectric dam in China is exactly the same energy that's produced that a coal-fired power plant in West Virginia or something like that. It, and this really does speak to the fact that actually energy production is very local and you can't transport it very far. Yeah, outside of oil, which like you can put in a barrel and you can like, that's what before the shale industry blew up, we were, mm-hmm. we were getting barrels of oil shipped over to us from Saudi Arabia and other countries, Venezuela, Nigeria. And like, that's the beauty of that particular. Mm. Like, it's actually portable oil. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right, you can put it in shipping containers and send it over. You can't do that with solar or wind. Mm. Mm. And does that affect the economics of oil? Because it does seem to have something of a privileged place in the world today, especially through the petrodollar. Like, can you explain, like, being able to put it in a barrel? Like, <laughs> does that have some quality that makes it more susceptible to being used in the way it's being used? Well, actually, before we get to that, what is the petrodollar? <laughs> uh, maybe we can talk about that a little bit. And what's the oil's role in the dollar? So the petrodollar started after 1971 in the 70s. And I guess the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and now OPEC basically made a deal like, mm-hmm. hey, whenever anybody goes to buy a barrel of oil from you, they have to convert it from their local currency to dollars. So, mm-hmm. so they try to make the dollars, that's how the dollar attain part of the reason the dollar attained reserve currency of the world is anybody who wanted to buy oil from Saudi Arabia and OPEC countries had to first convert their native currency into dollars a driving demand for the dollar. So the petrodollar is basically a way to describe the way the oil markets work in which like mm. to get the petro, you need to convert your currency into dollars and that drives a lot of demand for dollars and makes mm. it the most liquid that fiat currency in the world, if you will. Mm. And so that's how that started. And in terms of like, being able to put 
oil in a barrel and ship it anywhere around the world, right? You just have access to a much larger market than mm. you would if you're running a hydro dam that only mm. services like a small city or a small state, if you will. Mm. You can only sell it to that locality. Mm. Whereas with oil, the fact that it's transportable in barrels, you can open up that market to the global, <laughs> to the world, to 7 billion people. Mm. And so that makes much better price discovery. Mm. And then the fact that it's extremely energy dense it just makes it all more better. It's the most efficient energy source mm-hmm. as well. Mm. Outside of nuclear, nuclear is way more efficient, but <laughs> people don't like nuclear. Yeah, I mean, I guess you can transport nuclear rods or something. <laughs> and like yeah, I mean, you can it. transport uranium. Yeah, uh-huh. the, but the reactors would be pretty. They have to stay pretty immobile. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay. So the petrodollar. It has been sort of like this thing for a while. And, you know, part of it is because, uh, you know, you can transport it. And it, there is sort of like a very large, thriving global market for it because of its transportability. How did the U.S. sort of use that economically to essentially like dominate the world? Right? Like, uh, because like 1971, gold standard is taken away. But the U.S. continued to have that exorbitant privilege. Why? Military might, definitely one reason, but again, yeah, yeah, for some reason, we we were able to convince the Saudis in the Middle East to to force everybody to convert their local currencies in the dollar. That naturally just drives demand for the dollar in the global Mm -hmm. markets, makes it a stronger, Mm -hmm. stronger currency. If (laughs) <laughs> the central bank isn't printing too much of it at any mm-hmm. point in time. Um, but yeah, no, just, and so that makes the dollar the unit of account of the oil markets. I guess, I mean, there's many factors that go into it. Again, military, mm-hmm. the fact that you're creating, I don't want to say artificial demand, but you're like forcing demand for dollars via the petrodollar. And mm-hmm. at the same time, you're moving manufacturing away out of the U.S. to other countries so that you can flood those localities with dollars to drive more demand for it and create... Mm-hmm get the dollar in more hands around the world so making it more useful it was multifaceted right it mm. wasn't i think the petrodollar is pr- probably one of the strongest driving forces because there's so much demand for oil but mm. you know, there was there was other factors that, that play into it well as well like giving people in third world countries manufacturing jobs and then buying those goods with dollars and therefore <laughs> introducing dollars to those markets and mm basically creating demand. Mm. So you're saying that essentially the U.S. gave up its manufacturing capacity to foreign markets as a way so that they can earn the dollars that they needed for the oil that they would buy and some you know other stuff that they might want to buy as well. Yeah, I don't know if it was directly connected to the oil purchase at the end of the day, mm. but it was, again, it was like another way to drive demand for dollars. There's a Triffin dilemma at play, right? Like, mm-hmm. So you, you have the short term. You need to flood the global market with dollar liquidity so, mm-hmm. that, so you can drive demand for the dollar. And mm-hmm. the way you do that is you, you move mm-hmm. manufacturing to places where it's cheaper. And, mm-hmm. and you, you basically gut out the, the manufacturing base of, of your home country. Mm-hmm. And you support these countries like China and their manufacturing industries, mm-hmm. which isn't bad in and of itself. But it's, it's just like an unwise political decision that is, I think, I mean... Obviously, we're Bitcoiners, and the whole fiat monetary. This is a product of the fiat monetary system being able to flood 
these mar- markets with dollars in the first place. It's it worked out very well for us in the short term. It, mm. it helped us become extremely rich and, and create a lot of economic growth, but also the innovation that Americans drive forward is a product of that too. Again, all this is multifaceted, but the drive to flood the world with dollars, again, it's hollowed out our working class, mm. enriched a bunch of other countries. And now I think that's why you see a bunch of the social incohesion we have in society right now. You have a working class that has been completely left behind by its own government, its own federal reserve, its own central bank, all in the sort of push to drive dollar liquidity around the world Mm. Uh, so that the dollar could, (laughs) again, so the dollar could rule the world, become the reserve currency, and then... You, you have people losing jobs here and replacing them with crappier jobs. And it's, yeah, it's, it's it had a lot of short-term sort of bursts to the economy and the financialization of the world that was dominated by New York finance. And, but again, over 35, 40, 50 year timeline now, it's been like a slow decay that is eaten away at the, the manufacturing base and the, the working class in this country. Mm. Yeah, indeed. It seems to have been, that the middle class and a lot of the manufacturing workers were sacrificed at the altar of the U.S. dollar. Yeah, it's yeah, and then we were warned about this when when Nixon went off the gold standard, tripping. Mm-hmm. Forget his first name, but it's the, he literally said, "All right, if you're going to do this, like you're going to need to flood. Mm-hmm. If you're going to disconnect the dollar from the gold standard, and you're going to have a free floating currency, like to make it viable in the short to medium term, or you're going to have to flood." all these markets, and so how do you flood your markets with them? You're going to have to buy goods from them, right? Mm. And you're going to have to support those manufacturing bases and mm. turn your back on your own manufacturing base because it's too expensive. And mm. yeah, It's a weird, short-sighted thing that, that the political banking class did in mm. the 70s. Mm. Did the move to oil lead to the crazy oil shortages from the 70s? I'm not sure exactly about what led to the shortages in the 70s and that mm-hmm. inflation, right? Because that mm-hmm. was, that's, uh, that's another instance when the Fed had to step in. Actually, probably the last good Fed chairman, <laughs> Paul Volcker, was the only one who's ever had the balls to raise interest rates. Uh, mm-hmm. I think he raised them to like 18% at one point to help curb the, the inflation, a lot mm-hmm. of which was being driven by the, the gas prices. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it was, of course, like decades of way too much spending, you know, with the 50s and 60s to just, you know, under the gold standard and, you know, countries that had to use the dollar to convert to gold and so on, they spent way too much money and that seemed to come home to roost in the 70s with the inflation. Yeah. And we haven't gotten away from it. Mean, yeah. It's, it's weird what happens when you mess up the money. <laughs> indeed, indeed, it is weird. All right, so I do want to point out one more thing before we get more into the Bitcoin aspect. You mentioned before that, you know, a lot of these oil and gas companies, they rack up tremendous amounts of debt. And often that that doesn't make any sense, right? Like 17% based on some kind of ridiculous projection of what a barrel of oil would be. How has sort of the fiat monetary system affected this industry and made it kind of worse than it otherwise would be. It's made it extremely fragile, right, by mm-hmm. enabling a mass misallocation of capital. Mm-hmm. I think arguably 
some of those hundred million dollar seventeen percent pick loans wouldn't be <laughs> wouldn't it be getting issued if we had if we had a sound money. And so basically, we had a shale revolution in the United States in the first two decades of this century. And again, we figured out how to pull a lot of the oil that we have on our continent out of the ground in a very novel way. And we spread ourselves a little bit too thin. We drilled too many wells. We we weren't as efficient with those wells. We, mm-hmm. A lot of producers took out, this isn't every producer, but a lot of producers took out like insane amounts of debt, uh, mm-hmm. just expecting very short-sighted financial moves, expecting the price of a barrel of oil to be elevated. And it's funny because it's a bit counterintuitive. Like If you're in the shale industry at the time, there's plenty of individuals who were screaming this as it was going on. But mm-hmm. like if you're going to drill all these wells and get all this oil out of the ground, there's no way it's going to sustain these prices that you're projecting them to sustain because you're bringing so much supply to market. Mm. Um, and so that's the shale industry got a little got a little high off uh, the innovation and the access to easy capital and drilled more wells than they probably should have mm. and brought more oil to market there for driving, helping to drive prices. And so they were not able to pay back some of the debts they racked up with projections of barrel oil will be much higher. And so it actually helps exacerbate the problem too, because if you're, you're not able to pay back the debt because the, the price of oil is not where you expect it to be, how mm. do you make up with that volume? So mm. you start drilling more wells to get more <laughs> volume to market after like driving mm. prices even lower. Right? Mm. And that's why we saw the barrel cost of a barrel in oil go from what, like $120 to down in like the, 30s at some point last year mm-hmm. like 40s 50s hovering I, I haven't checked the crude price this week but yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, if the gas, the gas prices are going up though right yeah now. yeah and that is interesting there's essentially a lot of malinvestment that happens during these booms as a result of the fiat money and that caused sort of like an overproduction causing prices to go down which from a consumer standpoint you might say hey that's not so bad so what's the downside I mean, the downside is when the chickens do come home to roost. You have mm-hmm. you have to shut in wells. You have to mm-hmm. you have to consolidate, right? And you see, mm-hmm. we've seen this in the last twelve months, particularly. There's been a lot of mergers and acquisitions and bankruptcies because mm-hmm. everybody's overextended. You had the OPEC plus meeting, historic one last April, in which Russia and Saudi Arabia got in a quote unquote tiff, and they they mm-hmm. actually decided to <laughs> increase production, which mm-hmm. when people expected them to keep it stable or or even reduce production, they decided to increase and that crashed prices. A lot of individuals say they were trying to intentionally squeeze out the shale industry mm. and have consolidations over here. wouldn't be surprised if if that was sort of the intention behind that that move. The Saudis and and Russians could certainly be threatened by the shale industry because it started being very good at serving demand outside of the United States and actually delivering oil outside of our borders, which eats into their their margins. And so, mm. yeah, but you have these male investment. You have way too many wells that are drilled. If OPEC plus, if Saudi Arabia and Russia are going to increase their production, that means the supply over here is going to be worth less. Right? Supply and demand coming more more supply is going to drive the prices down, especially if demands falling in a, in a world mm-hmm. in which uh, the governments are forcing everybody to lock down and stay home <laughs> from work. And yeah, so the, a lot of producers just weren't resilient enough to stomach that volatility. And so he had quick turnarounds of people either having to go completely bankrupt or sell themselves to, to bigger players mm. who were better capitalized. 
Mm. So it's essentially caused larger and larger businesses to uh, like Consol- and, and less and less players. Yeah, yeah. So you have consolidation, and then it's a shame too because like you waste a lot of the precious resources that we have. That's the thing. Like, like the goal should not be to transition fully to green, green technology, energy. Like number one, it's it doesn't make any sense because they're unreliable. Mm. Like you, you can't like the clouds come out, the wind stops blowing. You can't depend on that as your energy generation source solely. And then number two, like there's steps that we should be taking before we even begin to broach that conversation, which is we should be as efficient as possible with these scarce energy resources. And mm-hmm. so the shut-ins that and the misallocation of capital that led to the mergers and the consolidation and the shut-ins of wells, that's leading to like a lot of wasted resources. Like when you shut in a well, it's not going to produce as much when you when you try to open it back up. Like you're mm. you're leaving a lot of potential molecules that could be used to create electricity, mm. like wasting them. Mm. So, the systemic fragility that was created by mass misallocation of capital is leading to a lot of waste. Mm. Not only capital waste, but precious resource waste too. Mm. Mm. So, what you're saying is that there was a lot of misallocation of resources that ultimately you know came, could have been directed elsewhere had the capital markets not been so screwed up by fiat money yeah yeah like, <laughs> yeah just think about that one I always think about that one oil company. like would they have ever been able to get that hundred million dollar pick loan mm. under a Bitcoin standard right, right. with those projections. Like, all you have to do is, like, <laughs> look at the amount of wells that are being drilled. Mm-hmm. Look at the back. Like, again, people got fracking came out, mm-hmm. hot technology. After the Iraq war and great financial, cri- or leading up to the great financial crisis, and like, oil's, like, riding high, and people expecting expecting it that mm-hmm. number to go up mm-hmm. considering like how quickly like the stock to flow to oil is, is nowhere near <laughs> bitcoin and so like you could collapse those prices pretty quickly mm. you could and it did <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> <laughs> so all right so let's think about like how this industry would run under a bitcoin standard because in a sense like you're trying you've thought about this a lot <laughs> because you're in it and you're obviously taking advantage of some of the subsidiary effects of oil and gas drilling. But besides, you know, being able to run liners with flared gas that otherwise wouldn't, would get wasted, what else about this industry changes under a Bitcoin standard? You've hinted at some of these. Yeah, well, I mean, again, it leads to less misallocation of capital. You don't drill mm-hmm. as many wells because you're not able to because you can't get access to the capital to justify mm-hmm. it. Arguably, the demand, it's like the weird, par- like, does demand go up? Like, does Jevons paradox come into play where we're going to use more oil, even though we're on a Bitcoin standard, because people are able to allocate capital more efficiently mm. for more productive goods? That's, like, one part of the thought experiment that I haven't internally come to a conclusion with in my mind yet. But, mm. like, so, arguably, like, the energy is going to be used more efficiently, right? Because you're going to allocate capital to actually build things that people need and people want and mm-hmm. the opportunity cost shifts under a Bitcoin standard, right? Like, mm-hmm. you need to make sure that you're using these resources to build good things. So, like, after it's extracted, the, hopefully the energy will be used for very productive and efficient things that lift the quality of life for society overall. 
at the wellhead and throughout the industry. I mean, so I think you do have to tie in the mining aspect to it, right? Mm. Like, so I think the Bitcoin mining industry and the oil and gas industry, and not even the oil and gas industry, Bitcoin mining and the energy mm. sector in general are in, engaged in a symbiotic relationship, mm. right? Where the parts of the energy industry are able to provide Bitcoin miners who are looking to be as profitable as possible, low cost of power production. I mean, in return, Bitcoin miners are mm. providing demand for energy that otherwise would not have demand because mm. it's either stranded or unable to get to market, or, mm -hmm. which is stranded, uh, mm -hmm. flare gas. So I think you do have to tie in how mining plays into this. So what we do at Great America Mining, again, we go and we take gas that would be flared. We've run it through generators and mine Bitcoin with it. So we're taking that flared gas that is usually just a, a drag on producers' balance sheets where mm. they literally have to spend money to do that. And if they do too much of that, they have to shut down production mm. because they're infringing on regulations, mm -hmm. EPA regulations, depending on what state you're in. And so, number one, it's a drag on your balance sheet because you have to pay to set it on fire. And then number two, if you set too much of it on fire, you have to shut down your oil production. Then you're losing money because you're not actually able to get the oil in your well to market and so that's like a high opportunity cost and so bitcoin miners coming in first order effect is like all right you're actually going to make money for this gas now mm -hmm. and if you want to participate in the bitcoin you can make a lot of money mm -hmm. uh, if you want to just take that gas and turn it into bitcoin instead of selling it to a bitcoin miner like our thesis at great american mining is that producers are going to be miners mm. and We'll get more into that thesis later, but mm -hmm. so the first order effect is like, all right, you take that drag on your balance sheet and you turn it into a positive revenue stream, mm -hmm. which makes you more profitable. Mm -hmm. And that shifts the opportunity cost at the business decision level, mm -hmm. right? So when you're drilling a well, some of the variables that go into it is like, all right, so when you drill a well, especially an oil well, it's not only oil that comes out, oil and natural gas comes out. And so most producers, all producers, especially oil producers, only care about the oil. Mm. because that's the most profitable thing. Mm -hmm. Natural gas sales are minuscule on their, on their bottom lines. And mm. so they just want to get oil to market. But if you can come in and take that gas, which is otherwise a nuisance, and make mm. it very profitable, you can drive a high price for it via selling it to the Bitcoin network, Bitcoin miners, selling it for Bitcoin. So create, turning it into electricity and then turning it into Bitcoins like, mm -hmm. on site. So that, that raises the, the sort of percentage that that a gas gas flows would represent on uh, a producer's revenue stream it begins to increase against the oil revenue and so you're actually becoming more robust because you're not dependent solely on oil you're able to monetize your gas as well mm. so that makes you more resilient and then it changes like the decisions you make like if you're able to consume this gas on site why would you build a pipeline so like mm. secondary and third order effects be begin to come into play like i can bring this what we say is like we bring the market to the molecule mm -hmm. instead of you having to bring the molecule to the market via pipeline like mm. we'll just bring it to you so you don't have to wait 18 months to to build a pipeline you don't have to pay for all the permits you don't have to pay for all that physical infrastructure mm. you can instead bring bitcoin miners on mm. minimal infrastructure no cross-border problems because you're doing it right on site mm -hmm. and you turn that into bitcoin which actually at this particular point in time happens to be much more profitable than actually selling the gas to market mm. and so then the effects begin to be all right you don't build as many pipelines mm -hmm. maybe you don't do natural gas liquids anymore because that's another option they have they can flare it or they can try to bring natural gas liquid compressor 
compression stations on site and, and compress it into a liquid and then sell it to market. But that loses them money as well. Mm-hmm. It's not as profitable. You can't get a really high price for NGLs. And then the uptime of those compressor units is not good. So, again, you have to flare the gas that, when it, that compressor is not performing well. And then, so like you have this profit stream or this revenue stream in the form of Bitcoin, which makes you more profitable overall. So you're a more resilient company, and then you can begin to say, all right, maybe I'd be more methodic with how I drill wells. Maybe I don't need to drill as many wells and depend on oil volume getting to market to, mm-hmm. as, to get my nut. Like I can be very efficient with how much oil I'm getting to market and depend on that, that alternative revenue stream. Mm-hmm. So the second and third order effects are pretty massive. Like you, We're going to be extremely efficient. Business decision-making is going to change drastically because it's one variable. It's going to take time. It's going to take decades for this to, to reach these industries at scale, but the, the ball is rolling and it's happening. So Bitcoin is making a lot of, adding a lot more efficiency to this market and maybe changing up a lot of the decisions sort of on profitability and so on. And you also mentioned that sort of capital allocation would probably change and they wouldn't be going so much on sort of like a wing and a prayer, right? Like, oh, this might work and assuming all these like kind of unlikely things. How about on the capital side? So we, we did talk a little bit about, you know, the allocation of resources being a lot better and the production of oil in turn being used a lot better by everybody. But would it like, I'm just trying to think out through to, you know, the current petrodollar system, obviously, and oil plays such a big part of that. How would that change, like, the lack of a petrodollar system change the world economy? Drastically. Mm. So it's going to be a gradual change. I actually had a gentleman by the name of Nas Alhaji on my podcast, Tales from the Crypt and Gamcast, I actually cross-posted this episode because it was so good. And he's been an oil analyst for a while, and he's becoming a Bitcoiner. And he, he sees the way Bitcoin coming into play in global oil trade starting as a settlement currency. Mm. Oil will be priced in U.S. dollars, but mm-hmm. countries will settle with Bitcoin. Mm. Like they'll, they'll get a U.S. dollar price, and then they'll, they'll send Bitcoin to each other. So that's like mm. the first stage. Mm. That's what he believes, and he strongly believes that that is going to be a trend, especially as the geopolitical tensions between these superpowers continue to heat up, particularly mm. between China and the U.S. and Russia. Mm. China and Russia could easily just be like, all right, let's settle this in Bitcoin. We don't want to settle this in dollars. We'll price it in dollars, but we're not going to drive demand to the dollar. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and that's just like a, that's a stepping stone, right? Eventually, you know, decades from now, maybe sooner, who knows, uh, you just move to a full-on Bitcoin standard where you pay for <laughs> your commodities in Bitcoin. You don't have to do this currency exchange. It's barter it. Mm-hmm. What is FX? You're bartering one currency for another and, mm-hmm. and paying the, the cost there. So you have a, much less friction at scale when Bitcoin takes over, hopefully as a global reserve currency. Like You mm-hmm. don't need to uh, do currency barter to get your commodities. You just send somebody Bitcoin and mm-hmm. they send you the oil. You simplify the process much, mm-hmm. much more. What does that do for the state of like geopolitics and like the well, or international trade? Does that make everybody start trading with Bitcoin? Yeah, I, I would imagine so. Mm-hmm. Like, right? Like, you're already starting to see this happen. Like, 
I mean, with the the pariah states are, mm-hmm. I mean, famously have, have used, like, I think it's, I think it's a fact. I don't know if it's a fact or a rumor or like a very rumor with like a lot of validity behind it because people are close to the situation, but I'm pretty sure Russia and Venezuela have exchanged goods and paid mm. for Bitcoin mm. and use Bitcoin as a settlement currency to do that. Yeah, it's, it's very early stages, but yeah, global trade is going to be operating on Bitcoins because it's much more efficient. Like, why <laughs> would you go through the currency bartering? Mm. If you have Bitcoin, it just makes everything so much easier. Mm. And would, do you think oil will then be priced in Bitcoin and then maybe trickling down to sort of like a unit of account for everybody else? Yeah, at some point. Mm. Who knows what? Yeah, but it's all it's all process. It's an order of operations. First you get countries settling in it because mm. it's more efficient, it's easier, cheaper, mm-hmm. faster. And doesn't give money to the U.S. bankers. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the other thing. Mm-hmm. Right, so like, I think the energy companies, by proxy of also being miners, are going to replace central banks. Not in the mm-hmm. sense that they dictate the monetary policy or interest rate associated with the Bitcoin network, but in the sense they replace the Fed window. They, pl- they replace the, the window through which money is produced and distributed to the global markets. Mm-hmm. And... So, like, to your point, like, they're not going to be paying the bankers, but they will be paying the future central bankers, which will be energy companies, right? Like the, <laughs> or the miners, I guess. Yeah, the mi- so they're miners. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. the miners, like, my thesis is, like, energy companies will be the largest miner, like, mm-hmm. in the world. Because mm-hmm. they have the access to the most energy. Mm-hmm. The cheapest energy, too. And that will be the restricting thing or the thing that not everyone can get, essentially. Yeah. And, I mean... And that's just because of the nature of the risk they're taking, right? They're mm-hmm. taking the risk of going <laughs> to mm-hmm. these places to extract the energy and actually doing the work. Mm-hmm. And again, like as we described earlier, when you poke a, a hole mm-hmm. in the earth to pull out oil, natural gas is going to come out with it, and you have to mm-hmm. do something with it. And if you can't get it to market, mining Bitcoin with it just makes incredible sense. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of natural gas that comes out mm-hmm. of these well pads that cannot be brought to market. So you need mm-hmm. to bring the market to the molecule mm-hmm. and that's going to produce a lot of a lot of energy dedicated like upstream energy upstream energy dedicated to the bitcoin network is going to be pretty significant at mm. the end of this decade i think it's mm. interesting so there's a whole bunch of energy that's just mm. sort of wasted yeah that that literally uh, set on fire yeah which is horrible for everybody involved it costs the mining company or the oil and gas company money it's causing you know more pollution all sorts of other things yeah and that's so like again that's something particularly miners like great american mining that are using fossil fuels in the form of natural and we're using fossil fuel as our energy source to mine bitcoin there's no (laughs) beating around that bush it's what the fact is but what we have to articulate and communicate with the world with the rest of humanity is like we're taking these extremely scarce resources and not not extremely scarce but like we're taking these scarce resources and take their they would otherwise be wasted literally set on fire and we're tr- taking them we're turning them into electricity that electricity is turning them into hashes and then it's turning those hashes produce bitcoin which is another scarce asset an extremely yeah. scarce asset on the other side so 
we want Bitcoin mining to consume more energy because it actually is the most efficient use of that energy because it tokenizes it, right? It takes mm. it from this very scarce physical good and it turns into an extremely scarce digital good. So you're mm. preserving its essence. You're memorializing it in these UTXOs and these Bitcoin. Mm. And, that, and that's a beautiful thing. Like you're mm. not wait, you're not, the, when you flare gas, mm. you're just sending that up into the atmosphere and getting nothing for it. Mm. Like in return for mining, like taking that again, people have to understand the beauty and the significance of what Bitcoin mining does and melds the physical and the digital world together. That mm. the process of energy, natural gas molecule, combust to electricity, that electricity runs miners that produce hashes. Those hashes allow miners to add blocks to the Bitcoin ledger and they get rewarded for this very scarce digital asset. So you're starting on one end with a very a scarce physical good on the other end you get a scarce digital good that's memorializing that you're essentially turning something that's physical and giving it more liquidity than it otherwise oh would. yeah you're giving it global liquidity too mm -hmm. that's the crazy thing so like if we, what do we say mm -hmm. like a, about energy earlier yeah that? like like some forms of energy are very restricted to their locality if mm -hmm. you can take it and turn it to this scarce digital good that can be sent anywhere around the world Mm -hmm. You're creating a global market for that. Hmm. Indeed, you are. Yeah, I've always thought about like how Bitcoin will change the energy industry. I'm like, you know, there's probably sources of energy like at the bottom of the ocean or something <laughs> that no one's ever thought to go and do something with. But if the you know cost to benefit is there, then there probably going to be people that are mine at the bottom of the ocean or wherever where no one actually has demand for energy except for the Bitcoin network. Right. If you can figure out how to get those hashes <laughs> out of the bottom of the ocean and up yeah. to, to a pool, like it's going to happen. Or, you know, middle of the Gobi Desert or, you know, in the middle of Antarctica or something like that. Yeah. yeah, I have no idea what sort of energy sources there would be in those places. But, you know, we haven't really thought about it that much because energy always has had to be near people except for oil of course you know because you can oil and coal i guess that have been able to be transported yeah yeah and it's it's crazy how it's going to change humanity right mm -hmm. like we're again humans utilizing energy sources to create electricity to make our lives better is a good thing mm. we should limit pollution mm -hmm. we should limit waste as much as we should eliminate it if we can mm. bitcoin finally provides a mechanism through which we can profitably eliminate waste and pollution in the throughout the energy supply chain mm. and it's something that should be celebrated and not mm. and not attacked viciously by incompetent journalists who don't understand energy markets let alone bitcoin yeah yeah it does seem like that's the thing that i'm learning more and more as i do these podcasts is <laughs> Most things are way more complicated than they seem. And uh, what we're seeing is just one dimension of, or a very small snippet of the entire story. And often we make that the narrative by which we see everything. Yes. And I hope, like, I've been talking bad about green energy mm. sources on this. But I don't, I want to make it clear, like, I'm not against that at all. Like, I think we should be doing that where we can and when we can we mm. should not be solely relying on it but though because mm. it is inherently unreliable mm. you can't force the sun to be out all the time you can't <laughs> force the wind to blow all the time like you need a mix of these sources mm. 
and we should be looking more into nuclear, right? Like yeah. that, like that's what Bitcoin mining, mm-hmm. like regardless of the the climate in like the narrative battle in the mainstream around nuclear, like we're going to get nuclear because mm-hmm. Bitcoin miners are incentivized to make it happen because mm-hmm. it, it is the next step to driving their prices down lower mm. towards price of zero, maybe even negative in some cases so that they can mine profitably. And mm. that is Bitcoin mining literally incentivizes humans to produce cheaper and cheaper energy, which is a beautiful How thing. How would energy prices be negative? You, <laughs> they want to be negative. Like you want to get paid to take it, but uh-huh. I suppose if it was like, otherwise harmful to the environment or something like that, then maybe somebody would pay you to take it. Like, so for Bitcoin mining specifically, like you can, mm-hmm. if you can create like a, a revenue stream with the waste heat of mm-hmm. the miners mm-hmm. and your cost is already very low, you mm-hmm. can just like use the waste heat. That's not taking any more of the energy from mm-hmm. your generators. It's literally just heat's going to be made anyway. You can do something with that. That creates like a profitable revenue stream. Yeah, I've heard of Bitcoin beer or something like that, right? Like people will heat up like these giant baths of you know hops or whatever. In Canada, there are Bitcoin miners literally boiling the oceans, but because they're using their waste heat to create salt. And, oh, uh, interesting. They're they're boiling salt water to to separate the salt from it, so that they can then sell that to market. Makes sense. All right, so I think maybe that's a good place to leave it off. Where can people find you, Marty? I hang out on Twitter a lot, at Marty Bent. The website for Great American Mining is gam.ai, G-A-M.ai, if you want to get a peek into what we're doing at Great American Mining uh, and a bit of our thesis and what our team looks like. And if you want to hear my Bitcoin content, more focused, broad more broadly focused Bitcoin content, tftc.io. That's my newsletter, my podcast. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for being on today. It was educational, and hopefully people get something out of it. Well, thank you for having me on, Jimmy. It was a pleasure. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Marty can be found at at Marty Bent on Twitter and tftc.io. Until next time. Fiat de Lenda Est.